0: Welcome back to another episode of Conservative Roundup. Today we'll be interviewing David Sweet, the, F- the MP for Flamborough, Glanbrook, Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 17 of Conservative Roundup. Today we're joined by David Sweet, the MP for Flamborough, Glanbrook, Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. Thank you for being with us, David. It's great to have you. It's
1: good to be here. Thanks very much, Aiden.
0: Why don't you start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I uh, have a large family, we have uh, seven, seven children, uh, we've had uh, two tragedies, uh, so uh, uh, two of them uh, are, have passed away, uh, we still have uh, five children, and um, and uh, grandkids are, are coming at a very, very fast pace. <laughs> uh, I've uh, resided uh, in this uh, area of Ontario for the last uh, almost 30 years now. Uh, I was my hometown is Kingston. I was born there. Uh, came from uh, my my uh, dad is a military background, uh, and uh, uh, my mom, of course, uh, was in that era made parachutes for soldiers in the Second World War. So that's a, a little bit about my history. Maybe I should tell you that I, I I've always been a, what you'd call a political hack. I've always I've been very interested in how the country's governed and in uh, policy. And I decided in 2004, uh, when the parties were coming together, uh, the Canadian Alliance Party and the Progressive Conservative Party, that uh, I would seek office. I thought about it since I was 10 years old, actually, since 1967. Uh, And uh, so I won the nomination in 2004 for the Conservative Party of Canada. I lost the first election in June of 2004. And in 2006, I won uh, my first election, the first general federal election, uh, representing a... A riding called Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough-Westdale, as you mentioned, and then um, that was uh, reorganized. That riding, and uh, now I represent the riding called Flamborough-Lambrook. So I'm actually in my 16th year of being elected.
0: Wow! And why did you get into politics?
1: Well, I uh, I felt I could make a difference. I I saw that uh, the uh, fiscal responsibility, transparency, and accountability was lacking. I, I was pursuing a career at the time when the sponsorship scandal was very uh, much in everybody's mind and uh, the notion that governments had lost touch with ordinary people and had, uh, and had really lost touch with the fact that people work hard for their money and tax dollars should be treated uh, with the utmost of respect. And so not only was the sponsorship scandal very much in everybody's mind then, but uh, there was a, a something called an HRSDC boondoggle at the time as well, Over a billion dollars went missing. Uh, An auditor general's report had discovered, and uh, there was no evidence of where where it went to. Uh, So, um, you know, uh, I felt you know now was the time to run and to have a focus on accountability and transparency, and uh, giving my constituents some confidence that there'd be somebody there asking questions in that regard.
0: Wow! Perfect. Thank you, Mr.
1: I'm sorry. Go ahead. It just so happens that my first posting in committee, by the way, was uh, the Public Accounts Committee.
0: Wow, that is a very very important committee too. And you were on the the ethics as well?
1: Yes, I chaired the Ethics Committee for a short period of time. I chaired the uh, Veterans Affairs Committee, and I also chaired the Industry Committee as well, and Vice Chair on several other committees.
0: Wow. Mr.
2: Sweet, going into politics, who would you say is your biggest inspiration
1: no, I'd say without a doubt, uh, my biggest inspiration was Brian Mulrooney. Uh, I think um, because he not only looked after domestic issues uh, in regards to the GST, uh, that was the manufacturing tax. A lot of people uh, wouldn't remember that, but the manufacturing tax was 21%, and it was on manufactured goods. It made Canada quite um, uh, uh, uncompetitive. And uh, so um, the Mulroney Tories decided that, you know, we should, Take a look at a, a goods and service tax that would apply to everything, but was a more reasonable rate, uh, and uh, that, so he did a great job at that. That helped uh, in the long run our economy quite quite a bit. Uh, removing that uh, manufacturer's tax, uh, and then as well his foreign policy. You know, great relationship with the United States, the Acid Rain Treaty that uh, did wonders for the Great Lakes. In fact, uh, a lot of, again a lot of people would remember, but Elizabeth May. Uh, when she was the president of the Sierra Club, gave Brian Marroody the most green Prime minister award uh, for his for his work. Uh, and of course, uh, what I really admired him for was uh, rallying the international community to uh, stamp out apartheid in South Africa. Uh, so he's definitely my first champion. And a close second uh, would be Stephen Harper. And yeah, definitely two uh, good good politicians, sir.
2: Uh, as an MP so far, what do you feel is your biggest accomplishment so far?
1: I think uh, the biggest accomplishment, it's hard to pick one but, you know, because you asked me for one, I'll, I'll try to drag it and I think the biggest one was that I was passing a, a private member's bill. I was one of only 300 or so members of Parliament to get a private member's bill passed and uh, it was for fairness for victims of violent offenders. I, I, I felt, uh, along with accountability and transparency, that uh, victims had really lost their voice in the criminal justice system, that it seemed like uh, every year there were new rights given to those who were convicted of uh, violent offenses, but uh, less and less uh, was done for victims. And so um, I uh, tabled that bill and got unanimous consent of the House and, and passed the Senate. And it really gave more access to information for victims of violent offenders. It gave the parole board more tools to. Uh, stop uh, violent offenders from manipulating the parole board in in regards to uh, parole board uh, hearings. Uh, And um, it opened the door for more improvements in regards to how uh, uh, the options that uh, victims and their families have for communicating with the parole board.
2: Yeah, definitely something to be proud of. All right,
0: thank you. My next question, Mr. Sweetis, what type of conservative would you describe yourself and why?
1: I think I, I would call my myself, uh, you know, a matrix conservative, uh, because I, there, in in some in some senses, I would be called a libertarian. I, I very much agree with uh, our party planks in the sense that uh, you know less government is better than more government. That a dollar left in the, in the pocket of a taxpayer is generally used a lot better than a dollar in big government. Uh, but I'm also, uh, in some cases, uh, would be viewed as a progressive in the sense that you know, I think there are things that we can do to help the poor, help those who are less fortunate, help the disabled, help people that are with mental health issues, uh, those who are marginalized. We can do a lot better job at that. Uh, my other uh, politician of inspiration was Jim Flaherty, and, uh, you know, he uh, he brought in the uh, workers' income tax benefit that helped the workers get over the, what we call the welfare wall at that time. That was very restrictive and and uh gave them more of their own income back i think there's a lot more initiatives like that that we could do uh to really help uh, people who are on the margins and, and give them an opportunity to uh, to to enjoy you know the middle class uh, and uh, sorry in that sense uh, you know you I, I don't think you can really peg me in any particular uh hole in that regard i uh you know in some sense the uh you know, the value for life, the, the, that just passed and I voted against it, that, um, you know, I think it's abhorrent that a government would allow a bill like that to pass when they made a promise, you know, two elections ago to invest billions of dollars in uh, hospice and palliative care, and and they haven't done it. So now, from coast to coast, uh, you know, uh, uh, medical assistance in dying is available to everybody but palliative care and hospice care is available to very, very few Canadians, And, uh, that's, that's really concerning to me.
0: For sure. My next question is you voiced about out against the lockdowns. Why did you, why did you do that?
1: Well, look, most of the restrictions are, are provincial and, uh, you know, I was actually, uh, uh, cautioned that that was the case and my entire political career, you could trace it around. I seldom, if ever, um, ever spoke out on a municipal or provincial issue. I always felt that people that were elected to those levels of government are the ones that are responsible to their constituents. and so uh, you know I, I, I felt that I should stick with federal issues. but in this case, the measures were so extreme and affected so many Canadians. It affected their physical health, affected their mental health, affected uh, you know the whole sus- their societal engagement, everything that makes us human. Uh, as well as economic, I just felt that it was. Uh, I needed to speak out against the the level of lockdown that we're facing for a protracted period of time. Look, COVID-19 is a very serious virus, and it when it impacts people who are vulnerable, seniors, uh, when it's when it uh, let gets let loose in long-term care facilities and and congregate settings, uh, it can cause very serious. Health issues and death. Uh, and that's why we've said look, all of our resources and focus should be on protecting the vulnerable and those groups I just mentioned. But those who are 60 years of age and younger, who uh, are statistically um, not a threat, they're not, uh, COVID's not a threat to them, should be allowed to, you know, with minor restrictions as the green section does, uh, as the green uh, um, uh, column does in, in Ontario with those minors restrictions should be able to get back with their life and just you know uh, I think most Canadians from coast to coast realize hey I need to wear a mask I need to sanitize my hands I need to keep distance and if I do that uh, for the most part I'll be safe.
0: For sure. Thank you. Mr. Sweet for the
2: this is more of a federal thing now but for the hotel rules. What do you think the government needs to do? Because there's been a lot of problems ever since they've implemented it. What do you think they need to do to change change the rules so that way it causes less problems?
1: Look, I'm with my colleague, Michelle Rempel. I think it should be shut down until they can fix it. Uh, there's, there's no need to put Canadians in harm's way and to have them uh, restricted to 15 minutes of a walk around every day uh, again, this is a, a physical health and a mental health issue uh, where, where we we're, we're have these draconian restrictions. Uh, and we have a stockpile of rapid tests uh, that we could be using. We, we certainly have uh, the facilities to be able to track people and make sure that they go home and quarantine there. Uh, so the least that they should do is shut it down right now and make sure they get it right before they uh, force any other Canadian to uh, go to one of those hotels and pay an exorbitant fee uh, in order to stay there for, for three days until their test results come back.
2: Yeah, definitely, it's quite, a, and it's also expensive too, like $2,000 on top of your vacation, like if you come back.
1: So yeah, well one family paid $6,000 because they had multiple members that were traveling together, and uh, you know, for some people, this is just, it's just not possible, particularly when they, they, they've gone on what they consider essential travel, which would be to a funeral, Overseas for a loved one, um, nobody should have to pay that kind of price because they wanted to be at a funeral for somebody they loved. And and if I may add to that, you know, one of the things I didn't mention when we we're talking about restrictions is that you know I, I mentioned in my opening speech at Queen's Park, and I and uh, I, I'd like to say it again: nobody should die alone. And we've had thousands of people because of government restrictions take their last breath without anybody there. And then to add insult to injury, we've told people that they can only have 10 people at a funeral. And that includes the funeral officials. Uh, so this, this is inhumane. Um, this, this, this kind of treatment causes people to lose hope. Uh, there's no psychological or spiritual closure, uh, which is what funerals do. And so I just, uh, the government needs to rethink uh, how they uh, handle the, the broader public health question rather than only focusing on a virus uh, I tweeted out uh, today uh, some numbers that were produced by a report that said that uh, there are a quarter of a million life-saving, not, not elective surgeries, life-saving surgeries that have been postponed due to the government restrictions. Um, you know, these are people with cancer and other diseases that need these surgeries. Uh, and so, um, you know, look, like I said, COVID is serious, but so are many other ailments that affect our population. And we need to make sure that government restrictions on the hospitals don't impede their ability to get the healing services that they need.
2: Yeah, definitely would agree there. On the issue of reopening, what would you, what would be your idea almost of safely reopening Ontario for the majority of the population that's healthy?
1: Yeah, I think the green level that I mentioned has, still has plenty of restrictions. It even has restrictions on, on outdoor gatherings that... We know uh, there's, there's little to no transmission outdoors. So the, the green zone has those restrictions outdoors, has restrictions indoors. You, you can go to a, a restaurant, but they, the tables have to be two meters apart. Uh, and so there are plenty of restrictions there, masking, sanitization, et cetera, um, still. Uh, but it's a level where businesses can open and people can have some guests in their house, other family members, et cetera, and we can get back to some semblance of normality while still being safe. Uh, we, we have vaccines that are rolling out now that are that are being prioritized for the most vulnerable, which is exactly what we should be doing. And I think it's a good time to, to say, uh, look, we can move to green, uh, provided that governments focus on those long-term care facilities, congregate settings, and seniors who are vulnerable, because that's what we, we should, look, in the first wave, I know that the provincial government here said, we're going to put an iron ring around long-term care facilities. Well, if you look at the graph of the deaths per million from long-term care facilities in the second wave, it, it's very troubling. And uh, we, we we should have had better protection for our seniors. And now the chief medical officer of Canada has come out and said that um, that the job wasn't done for the second wave, and we didn't protect our seniors, people who worked their life to build this country.
2: Yeah, definitely like out here in Durham like we're in durham and we're in the red zone but it's it's basically like the gray zone almost like most of the restaurants are remain closed for the indoor dining and a lot of the small businesses they're not open either they're they you can't fit because you can only have like one or two customers in and they can't
1: sustain it right i think that the government has not done a good job defending our small businesses and communicating to regular citizens that if you spend your entire life saving and scrimping and investing in the business that you and your family and, uh, and a handful of employees rely on in order to pay your rent and, and eat, and then it's all taken away. It's not only economic, but the, the crushing nature of that to you emotionally and with your mental health, and subsequently your physical health is, is, is extreme. And so I think the government could have done a much better job at communicating that and letting people know that, if, you know, entrepreneurs, I think entrepreneurs are more dedicated to keep their shops safe than anybody because they want to stay open. So yeah. I, I think they'll do the right thing and limit people. I think they'll make sure they have masks on. I think they'll make sure they sanitize after everybody goes because they don't want to have a contact trace back to their facility. And, uh, I, and I think that uh, the unfairness, and you've heard this before, you know, of Costco's and Walmart's and other big-box stores, being able to put thousands of people through per day, and then the small entrepreneur um, can't even open, or the restrictions are so extreme, it's not worth it to open. Um, that, that, that's uh, just unjust. Yeah, definitely.
0: I agree. Thank you. Well, I want to get a couple of reactions from you now, Mr. Suit. In a Curtis, a long-term care home took the door handles off COVID positive patients. What's your reaction to the long-term care home doing that?
1: Well, look, I mean, this, you know, taking away these kind of civil liberties where you, you know, you, you, you can't even leave your room, go to the bathroom, whatever this, look, I don't know the specific, uh, occurrence that you're mentioning, but, um, we had a similar incident in the in the hotels that you were asking me about there, where they removed the locks, and of course a woman was sexually assaulted. So, I mean, to to tamper with the with the entry or exit for a marine, I mean, even for fire safety is absolutely illegal, uh, and I, I I see no reasoning for that. Not neither have I seen any justification uh, in any of the media when the people are questioned about it, uh, and. Um, you know this 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 level of isolation is is like I said psychologically and physically harming.
0: For sure, and, and definitely, even the the data doesn't prove the COVID hotels. Michelle Rempel has pressed the government for data that proves that COVID hotels are effective. They she has she can't even get a response not not from P Hack not from uh, graphic designer Patty Haidu not even from blackface, Justin Trudeau. She can't get a response, and it's it very, it's very concerning too. Because you look at states in the United States, such as South Dakota, Go- Governor Kristi Noem, Florida, Ron DeSantis, and they've had 100% capacity. They've no mask mandates, and they, and they've proved that that life can sustain and that COVID doesn't impact the lives, and it's still a safe reopening. That they're still sanitation that they're still masking if it's up it's up to the business providers why do you think doug ford is so keen to to keep ontario locked down
1: look i i i'm actually mystified by the motivation that 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 one he's going to have to answer but um you you know in this the, the whole picture uh of lockdowns most experts agree that for a short period of time lockdowns work so at the beginning of a pandemic four to six weeks assess what 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 kind of pathogen you're dealing with assess the capacity that you have and what you need to build out um, is is uh, you know very realistic uh, but once we started to get into the summer and then into the fall and we and we had you know reintroduction of restrictions and then they became more and more severe uh, without any help for the LTCs then you have to ask yourself you know why aren't we getting answers How, why I mean what one of the one of the most troubling things about this is what you just mentioned that none of the governments provincial or federal are really coming forward with the science and the justification for what they're doing and so that lack of transparency just causes people to question the the uh, regulations of the government and cause them to lose hope And and then for some people i don't suggest this at all but for some people they decide that civil disobedience is the is the path um look i i think that um I'm that kind of conservative that thinks that you should communicate openly and transparently with your population, and they'll do the mature thing if you're actually making decisions based on, on real science, real substance, real facts.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. And why do you think that France, the Quebec Premier François so Legault, implemented a curfew on residents? Why, how do, you think, why do you think that's still effective? If it's still it's proven it is illegal that you, governments can not impose curfews for for people to stay home they can't make them stay home why do you think that he's imposed a curfew?
1: Again, you know I don't I don't know what the motivation is I I, I suspect that he's trying to stop tra- you know people transiting to other people's houses and causing a spread and that kind of thing and as I mentioned before I think for the short term that's that's manageable but. the long term you have to teach your population that uh, how to be safe and how to deal with this and i I never i don't think it's ever good public policy whether it's health or whether it's general justice to punish an entire population because there's some outliers who decide to break the rules and that's what that's what's happening is you know you have some people that that are they say that are, are going to these super spreader parties or whatever uh but you know enforce enforce the rules on that. Go to green, have, have reasonable restrictions and when people do things that are, are unsafe, then target those people. Don't target everybody. And uh, the same goes for safety, you know, make sure that your again, your resources are to protect those who are vulnerable. Um, and uh, that and then that way you don't have to ration health care to those people who are less vulnerable to COVID but need regular uh, health services.
0: For sure. Thank you.
2: Mr. Sweet, uh for the over the past few days, we've learned that many countries have banned the AstraZeneca vaccine due to the blood clots. I wanted to get your reaction. How concerned are you that the current government has not banned the AstraZeneca vaccine and have full trust in the vaccine when there might be evidence that there it causes blood
1: clots? Yeah, I. You know, I. I'm not. A privy to and of course you know this gets back to our transparency again i'm not privy to the the, da- the absolute data that they are um one of my a big concern of course is that uh, every story in this whole pandemic has been one of sensationalism and so um you you take a look at at things that you know where you get one or two reactions and it becomes a headline and i think that's just as dangerous. Uh, you know, we need to have some more cooler heads. The media needs to really take a look in the mirror and ask themselves about responsibility. Uh, and uh, look, if after, if the if the numbers are to a level where uh, my understanding is, a number of countries in the EU have suspended it, uh, then uh, obviously our our healthcare system needs to take a, a close look at why they would have. I remember uh, Premier Kenny saying that. You know, for three countries who are, you know, in the same level of ours, when we, we can we can generally trust uh, the officials from there. Uh, but at, at the same time, I, I can't make a judgment myself because I'm not privy to the exact numbers that Health Canada are. Uh, but they should be more forthcoming with them so that um, if they there's got to be a good reason why they're confident in it, if there is, communicate it to our our uh, seniors so that. Um, they won't have any, any kind of hesitation to, uh, to get the injection.
2: For sure. My next question is, um, because there's sort of rumors going around that there could be an upcoming federal election, either in this May or June or whenever in the fall, um, my question is, what issues do you feel are most important that the Conservative Party should focus on for the upcoming election?
1: Well, a couple of things. Uh, but first, I should say that in the uh, 15 plus years I've served, if every time there was a rumor that there was an election, there was one, I would have been in about 62 of them. So <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you you learn to live with these rumors that are that are rolling all yeah. the time. Uh, you know, our party has said, and I think all the opposition parties have said that, you know, right now, um, there, this isn't the time for an election. I mean, we've, Right now, when we're trying to work our way out of these restrictions and out of the, out of the pandemic, um, and uh, take a look at what it means to rebuild the economy, uh, that's not the thing. But you know, if we end up in the election, I think um, you know, obviously, number one is, I think we should uh, be making sure that uh, we sound we sound it uh, the alarm loud and clear that we will work with provinces. We won't demand it, but we want to work with provinces to make sure that. All of the congregate settings, all of the long-term care facilities. Uh, so whether it's LTCS and or the broader um, uh, retirement homes for seniors, whether it's uh, uh, hostels and uh, uh, shelters like our Salvation Army here in in Hamilton, uh, or whether it's uh, whether it's uh, correctional facilities, we want to make sure that there's measures in place so that there won't be these kinds of spreads and victimizations as there was last time. I think. That's, you know, when it's fresh in people's minds, I think that's one of the things that you should have in, as a plank in your election. I think, uh, obviously, one of the things that conservatives always focus on is the economy. So how do we, how do we uh, uh, create jobs? How do we create an atmosphere so people will invest again? How do we give confidence to the hospitality and the tourism industry that this, these kinds of restrictions won't come upon them again so that they can continue to invest now and rebuild? i think that's that's extremely important for all of the sectors that have been decimated Uh, of course the energy sector as well uh you know the trudeau government has you know waged war on our energy sector and we need to uh, begin to take a look at how we attract investment back um, and and begin to educate our citizenry as well that uh, look i'm all for alternative energy Uh, In fact, I think that we have a great opportunity and so does the province of Ontario with the Ring of Fire and our own rare earth minerals that are there rather than relying on the Chinese Communist Party that forces young children in a democratic Republic of Congo to harvest rare earth minerals and then ship them to China to build lithium batteries. I think there's a great opportunity uh, for the conservative plank for the environment to say let's bring lithium battery." uh, manufacturing here to Canada and let's use our own resources and let's uh, use it with good labor and I think that there's a, uh, a place where in our in our conservative mindset to say that's that's where we can invest uh, we'll also we also need to make it clear that we'll invest in repatriating manufacturing for anything that has to do with safety and security or the health of our population so we should not be begging for personal protective equipment anymore we should make sure that the infrastructure is in place. And we should be funding universities like McMaster University that's already it's already well known for its infectious disease uh, research and has just come out and said that they could easily manufacture vaccines with just a modest investment to expand their facilities. So to be able to have homegrown uh, Canadian vaccines would be a, a great thing. So I think all those things are, uh, are priorities, particularly when people have... Uh, this uh, pandemic in mind, uh, along with the economy and jobs, uh, I, I think that would be part of uh, part of uh, a winning solution for people. And of course, alternative energy with the environment and, and making sure that we have a homegrown uh, answer to uh, to lithium battery production and uh, and, and uh, a solar um, solar power reproduction. Sure, thank you.
0: My next question is. What is your favorite Trudeau scandal? What's the most (laughs) interesting?
1: Well, you know, again, I don't have a favorite. I think, you know, one of the things that is very disturbing to us, uh, you know, know, uh, we live in a political world, so so, so, we laugh at these things sometimes, but all of them cost taxpayers a huge amount of money. And um, the other thing I'm very concerned about is the diminishment of trust in our institutions because of this. So um now we have citizens who look and um, they just think we you know politicians do whatever they want and we get lumped into one basket and uh this erodes trust and it and uh, it means that people stop engaging in the whole um, public policy process uh, very troubling so i think every scandal that uh mr trudeau has found himself within um uh, and every time he's he's uh you know um uh, Curtly said that well, we you know, we always work with the the uh, ethics commissioner Uh, I just think it's those are the kind of things that erode trust of Canadians and uh, that's another job we're gonna have to do is try to rebuild that trust and uh, Demonstrate that you can actually do politics without enriching your own pocket.
0: For sure. My next question is why have you decided not to run in the next federal election?
1: Well, I've been around a long time. <laughs> uh, you know, I've accomplished uh, what we needed. I mentioned my private members' bill. Uh, we have a McMaster Innovation Park here because uh, I was able to work with another great politician, Jim Flaherty, and uh, move Canmet Metallurgical Lab from Ottawa, where it was first founded, and bring it to an area where we're at the center of uh, of steel and metal production as well as uh, automotive manufacturing. Uh, that that was big and. Um, Uh, as well as I had a a very big hand with my colleague Mike Wallace in cleaning up the number one toxic hot spot in the Great Lakes, uh, Randall Reef. Uh, So I I felt um, I'm 64 and uh, had a lot of good wins and um, wanted to take some more time with my ever-growing family and um, take a look at some other opportunities. I haven't focused on any of them since I've been elected. I really felt I should always focus on my constituents and canadians uh but I mean, i'll look at some opportunities uh, i've got a couple of books on right and um uh it's, it's time
0: yeah well i very much look forward to those books my, my next question is where do you think Aaron o'toole should focus his efforts uh for the next election obviously every every 338 seat but what areas do you think most importantly gta maritimes bc where, where do you think
1: well, you know, of course, the 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 right answer, the right political answer is, uh, you know, every seat's winnable, right? And I, I, you know, of course, that's that's what you you want to grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some obvious ones, we we obviously need to uh, build the trust back of uh, our eastern provinces. I mean, we we did not do well at all out there, and it's it's all you have to do is look at the numbers, and you can see that. And so uh, we need to we need to have a, a message that uh, resonates with those uh, citizens in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland. Uh, and um, I think the other uh, growth area is to um, communicate more effectively with new Canadians as well. I, I, I sometimes think we we uh, don't do a really good job at that and uh, we need to get better at it. Uh, and And we need to. Start to fight against regionalization, against, uh, you know, this, this this kind of politics where you pit one region against the other. I think, you know, really good politicians, statespeople, try to put their efforts in finding common ground between the East and the West, between Quebec and English-speaking Canada, between the territories and uh, lower Canada, you know, all those things. I just think the time has come where we need to push back every time somebody tries to say that, well, this is better for this region um, and just say, look, let's, let's take a look at how we bring everybody together. Not everybody's going to win every kind of situation, whether it's trade agreements or whether it's interpro- or whether it's interprovision- interprovincial commerce or whether it's health care. Uh, but we need uh, the federal government's job is to do the best we can to make sure that we that everybody has a share in a bigger pie and that everybody feels like uh, we may not have gotten everything we want, but we certainly got what was fair.
0: For sure. Thank you.
1: Mr. Sweet, um, what is your reaction?
2: Because Prime Minister Trudeau, he really wants, I think he really wants the election. What is your, is that concerning to you that he wants an election so badly during a pandemic? Because we've seen in other provinces such as uh, Newfoundland that they've canceled their election. How concerning is it that he wants the election so badly?
1: Well, I, sp- I think it speaks to the character and nature of uh, the present Liberal Party and and the leader. Uh, you know, if if that's what you're concerned about is uh, political gain uh, during the toughest economic period that your country's gone through, uh, due much to much part by your own government spending. Uh, the fact that we've gone through the most difficult time in healthcare due to a pandemic and government restrictions and the fact that um we've we've gone through this period as i as i mentioned where people have lost uh trust and faith in their institutions then the last thing you should be doing is to try and you know profit from political gain so my concern is for you know uh, the average canadian citizen who is trying to pay their bills who's trying to make sure that their family is getting the best education possible uh and they'll be faced with making a choice uh when there's going to be all kinds of manipulation of of language you know i can see it you you, could, you two have been around politics long enough. you can see it where you know there's, there's going to be innuendo like well you know if you elect a conservative government you know this who knows if we can continue the successful rollout of vaccines and all these things that fear-mongering we see the Liberal Party do all the time and they'll just ramp it up even more at a time when people are more afraid and and like I said what a magnanimous statesperson leader should be doing right now is bringing confidence to Canadians confidence that their health will be fine, confidence that we can rebuild the economy, confidence that the government isn't going to take advantage of some political uh, chicanery uh, because there's an interim governor general or because we can say that we need a mandate um and i hope that if he tries that that people will see through that see through the the uh, uh just the, the terrible um nature of taking advantage of them uh and will punish him for it in the next election if he de- if he does that
2: And yeah, definitely my next question is won't be so negative here um over the past year of the- there's just been a little bit over the year of pandemic. What do you feel is the current federal government's biggest failure for the pandemic and their biggest success for the pandemic?
1: Well, I think the biggest failure was calling us racist when we said close the borders last year. I think that's uh, you know, uh, that's, uh, that has to be tandem on most of the countries. Who were able to slow the spread substantially and get on top of it, and then and then uh, make sure that they focused on the things I've mentioned several times in this interview, um, is uh, was closing the borders for a short period of time uh, to make sure that uh, we could we could slow the spread in our own country. Instead, we waited for months, and then we closed the borders, and now we're and then we punish Canadians coming back home. Uh, I mean, it's uh, you know. It, it's the height of ridiculousness i this is the antithesis to leadership uh so i would say that that's you know the number one thing um you know what they've done well uh i i i guess you know getting the getting the serve payments out to people how however broken it was and however you had to backfill and all kinds of things i, I guess you know that was you know if you're gonna halt everything uh, then that's going to be the measure that you need to do. And they, and they did that. And if you remember the dialogue that happened around that, we had to help them fix it, you know, quite yeah. a bit. So. All right. Thank you.
0: Well, Mr. Streeter, it's really great to have you on. I very much did enjoy this. I, I hope that we could do this again.
1: Well, thank you guys for being involved in the whole process and putting these podcasts out and giving us the opportunity to reach another audience. Thank you very much for your interest.
0: Perfect. Thanks, David. Have a great day.
1: Mr. Sweet, for your time.
0: Thanks. Have a great day. And you. And that was David Sweet, the MP for Flamborough, Glanbrook, and Castor Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. Make sure to tune in on the next episode of Conservative Roundup.